Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And in each of us, we can't help but uh, but ring with that, uh, that, that existential statement, I think, therefore I am. We're all bound up in this just endless whirlwind of thinking, and we're thinking about our own thoughts, we're thinking about our own consciousness, we're thinking about the world around us, we're thinking about the past, the future, we're thinking about the the, the, the possible reality of things outside of our observable universe, we're thinking about aliens, we're thinking about God. Uh, this, is, this is kind of the state of the human mind as a whole. Yeah, it's this whole big sushi roll of existence that we try to get our minds around and um it becomes very meta right we do a lot of thinking about thinking yeah essentially is what consciousness boils down to and it's problematic we call it the hard problem because we've never really found the center of consciousness we're not really sure how it relates to our existence we're not really sure how it relates to this idea of a creator something that created the world um, did we just uh, come out of nothingness? And in fact, American cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker said, quote, the idea of consciousness is ludicrous if it is not monstrous. It means to know that one is food for worms. This is the terror to have emerged from nothing, to have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self-expression. And with all this yet to die. Well, you know, on one hand, you could say that that's a deeply troubling thing to to take into your worldview. But if you accept that, then maybe it, it opens up your life for uh, for other pursuits. You can be like, all right, well, now I realize that I'm just I'm just feast for the worms that uh, that that my whole existence is just circling a black hole. But I don't have to worry about that anymore. I can spend some time gardening. Indeed. And I can hopefully create this uh, state of flow yeah. and just be in the moment, which we'll talk about in, in another uh, podcast episode. But today we're going to talk about this hard problem and this idea, This I'm not going to call it a simple idea because it's not, but a more straightforward idea called attention schema theory that might uh, put this more in a context that we can understand, more palatable, I should say. Yes. Now, I definitely want to preface here and say, on one hand, okay, we're going to talk about human consciousness here. We've talked about human consciousness before, devoted an entire episode to it. This is an area that we're going to continue to see advances in, in, in uh, neuroscience and, and even in, in philosophy. But it's going to be a while before we can, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll never even have a really concrete idea of consciousness that both makes sense on paper and feels right, uh, to our, our first person experience of it. Uh, so it's still a field that you, you see a lot of progress in. On the other hand, we're going to talk a little bit about God in the later part of this uh, episode. And God, of course, is something that we will never be able to prove scientifically. It, it, uh, the, the concept of God and gods and deities is, uh, is something that is, is ultimately unknowable to science. So the, uh, the theory that we're going to discuss in this episode, attention schema theory, is not we're not saying hey here is a theory that definitely explains all of these things that no. satisfies all these mysteries even the theory's uh, creator uh, Michael uh, Graziano a neuroscience novelist and composer professor of neuroscience at Princeton University uh, even he'll tell you this is not a satisfying theory <laughs> so yeah. what i would like to encourage everyone to do is uh, you know we're all coming in, into this topic with certain uh, constraints in our worldview 
uh, is to is to to not just completely throw your worldview aside, but lower the gate a little bit and open yourself up to alternate perspectives on what human consciousness is and alternate takes on how to view the idea of a god or gods. Including a giant, hairy orangutan puppet, which we'll get to in a yes. second. <laughs> that Graziano actually works into his bits here. Um, but Graziano says, we have been asking the wrong question. We've been asking, how do neurons produce a magic internal experience? And he's basically saying, "This you can't answer this. It's unanswerable. But he says, we can ask how and for what survival advantage does a brain attribute subjective experience, a.k.a. consciousness, to itself? And he says this is scientifically approachable and that his attention schema theory supplies outlines of answers for it. And this is where the orangutan comes in. Yes, so he picks up an orangutan puppet Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he starts talking about consciousness. And about the the idea that this orangutan punch, p- puppet is conscious. Now, on one level, we all know that a puppeteer takes the stage and they entertain us with a puppet show. That puppet is not really conscious. It is not a conscious being. If you had to choose, uh, you know, which uh, individual gets a brick thrown at them, a human child or an orangutan puppet, you choose the orangutan puppet every time and just hope that there's not a, a child's hand in it. Uh, but you still wince when that puppet gets hit. Yeah, yeah, we can't help but do it. I mean, you, you know, as we've, we've mentioned many times before, you draw a face on something and then you, you draw a face on a stick and then you break the stick, we're going to feel a little something. We, we, we can't help but personify the world around us. And by personify it, we end up engaging it with, uh, with some level, endowing it with some level of consciousness. Yeah, what I love about this is that he will start out his talks with Kevin the orangutan. And he does his bit, his mm-hmm. ventriloquist bit, which you know, guys, we love, right? If you've been following along and you've seen our episode on ventriloquism. And he says uh, to the audience, I'll be explaining my theory about how the brain, a biological machine, generates consciousness. Kevin, the orangutan, starts heckling me. Yeah, well, I don't have a brain, but I'm still conscious. What does that do to your theory? <laughs> and he says that Kevin is the perfect introdu- introduction because intellectually nobody is fooled. As you say, right? Like, we know this if we're going to have to choose between a kid or a puppet to throw something at. And he says, we all know there's nothing inside, but everyone in the audience experiences an illusion of sentience emanating from his hairy head. And he he kind of takes this as a jumping off point to talk about attention schema theory. Yeah, and uh, and we'll we'll continue to unpack that in this, po- this podcast, but it's... Uh, it's one of these issues where the, the theory forces you to rethink what consciousness is. And this is not one, going to be one of those crazy theories where it's, you know, where it's stating that, oh, well, the, the universe only exists because you have your eyes open and if you close your eyes, nothing exists uh, or anything like that. It's not, not that kind of a, a, a trippy, uh, theory, but it just forces us to reevaluate what consciousness is from our first-person perspective as well as the sort of third-person consciousness that we attribute to Others. Humans, puppets, uh, characters in novels, uh, video game avatars, you name it. That's right. And so he kind of goes into the past here to say, let's look at the evolutionary model of consciousness. How might it have arisen in, in animals? And what does that mean for us? What does it mean about the qualities of consciousness? And he does say that at some point, animal nervous systems acquired the ability to boost the most urgent incoming signals. 
He said too much information comes in from the outside world to process it all equally, and it is useful to select the most salient data for deeper processing. Over time, though, it came under a more sophisticated kind of control, what we now call attention, right? And we all have experienced this before. You shut out the outside world in order to focus your attention. Right. The example I always turn to is you're at a party. There are a lot of, a lot of different conversations going on. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, the people next to you are talking about football. The people over here, they're talking about theater. These people are talking about somebody you don't know named Ron. But you're trying to have a conversation with Amy about, um, installing a concrete pond in her backyard. So you, your brain is somehow able to shut out these, these non-essential conversations while still being aware of them and focus in on the central conversation about Amy and her concrete pond. Is the pond filled with concrete? Um, yes, it is. It's it's really not going to work, but she has these really high-minded ideas about how fish are going to live in it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the thing here is that he says mammals and birds both have it, this, this awareness, this attention. And he says they diverged from a common ancestor about 350 million years ago. So attention is probably at least that old. And attention leads to awareness, and awareness leads to consciousness. Yeah, it's basically this idea of uh, of consciousness, thinking of it as a, a focus of attention, a control of attention, and 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 that's key to our experience of this thing that we call consciousness. Our brains uh, process all of the sense data as well as our knowledge of ourself in the world, and uh, and the self that we're aware of ultimately is like a game piece on a table. Um, it, it, again, this is consciousness as information. You got to sort of shut out. Uh, these, uh, these, these more magical ideas that we layer on top of it about like a soul, about some sort of energy that, that arrives within us or some sort of angelic hand that's reaching in, uh, to occupy our brain. This is, uh, a, a, a biological brain that's dealing with a lot of sense data coming in, having to screen out some of it, and, uh, and, and it's about our control of attention over this data. Yeah, and I was just thinking about our podcast episode, It's a Trap, and we were talking about this spider that creates a essentially like a sculpture of itself Yes, mm-hmm. uh, as a decoy. And in that moment, you know that the spider has an awareness of itself because it just created, albeit a larger version of itself, for another uh, insect, a predator, and it is considering both itself and the other thing. So we know that this has been in existence, this consciousness. And um, we've talked about Steven Pinker's claim before that something like music is just auditory cheesecake, right? Mm-hmm. He has this idea that music is a byproduct of language. So you could start to look as consciousness as just cognitive cheesecake, okay? So this byproduct of awareness. And evolutionary biologist David Barash writing for Aeon Magazine, seems to think that this is the idea. He says maybe it's just a non-adaptive byproduct of having bigger brains, or rather brains bigger than is strictly necessary for bossing our bodies around. And he goes on to say, sure, a single molecule of water is water, but it isn't wet. And neither are two molecules of water, or a thousand, or maybe even a million. He says, but with enough of them, we get wetness. And not because wetness is adaptively favored over dryness, but because it's an unavoidable physical consequence of piling up enough H2O molecules together. And so he says, could consciousness be similar to that? And you you could accumulate enough neurons because maybe they permit their possessor to integrate numerous sensory inputs and generate complex variable behavior. So 
hey, there you go. You just wire all this stuff up and eventually you get consciousness. Yeah, uh, I love this idea of consciousness is ultimately this thing that builds up because of this uh, this loop uh, of, of of data in the brain. Um, I, I keep thinking of it in terms of a, a rear view mirror in a car. Now, this is a, a overly simplified uh, explanation of what's going on here, but you have a, a rear view mirror in an auto- automobile, and it's all about being able to look in that mirror and see what's behind the car. Mm-hmm. Rather simple. But we increasingly use that for other things. We we look in the mirror to see well, what our hair looks like, to see what our cosmetics look like, to look into the back seat to see what the child is doing, uh, etc. And so in this, the use of the mirror changes the way that we see ourselves. It changes the way that we see our environment and becomes this, this sort of thing unto itself. Yeah, especially if you consider... <laughs> That that mirror, that perception, can be easily um, manipulated. And what I mean to say is that we've talked about proprioception before and how our body schema and our attention schema are inherently linked, our idea, our map of ourself out there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, spatial awareness of our body and how it's represented. That can be completely um, shifted if there is something like, say, a brain lesion, in other words, you have all these computations in your brain, but if proprioception or some other element that informs that is skewed, well, the computations are skewed. Yeah, indeed. I mean, think back to our episodes on uh, proprioception and on the shadow self. Uh, both of those dealt with these ideas. Well, what happens when your brain, uh, the settings are changed just a little bit, and those settings affect the way that you make sense of yourself in time and space and in body? Um, and, and that's that's one of the key uh, things in play here with attention schema theory mm-hmm. is that it's, it's the idea that 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 our idea of consciousness and our conscious awareness of self is really something that is uh, that we attribute to ourselves. It is ultimately an avatar. Um, now, Garizano uh, goes into this theory in uh, detail in his book, Consciousness in the Social Brain, and he also has an excellent piece in uh, Ian Magazine that I'll link to on the landing page for this uh, for this particular podcast episode. But he says, the heart of the theory, remember, is that awareness is a model of attention. Like the general's model of his army laid out on a map, the real army isn't made of plastic, of course. It isn't quite so small and has rather more moving parts. In these respects, the model is totally unrealistic, and yet... Without such simplifications, it would be impractical to use, impractical to use the army. So therefore, the idea is that our conscious self is this, uh, this ultimately an unrealistic model of who and what we are, but it's necessary. But it's, but, but, but over time it has become, um, I mean, it is the way that we experience the world and it is the way that we are conscious of the world. You end up again in that loop and it makes it so difficult for us to, to even, uh, analyze what our consciousness is from the inside. Yeah. I mean, this idea that the brain is essentially constructing a model to, to monitor the fact that it's paying attention to something mm-hmm. totally makes sense and is also kind of amazing because as he says, all of a sudden awareness is emerging from this, uh, cartoon sketch that the brain has made of itself and others. Yeah. So in a way, it's like thinking, all right, here's Julian Robert, sort of. Here are these two bodies, these two uh, organisms. And in each of those organisms' minds is an idea of Robert and an idea of Julie, this this conscious self that they attribute to this body. Mm -hmm. And then likewise, we're each uh, attributing a conscious self to the other. Yeah. And you were even saying this, the, the person in the mirror is a projection of this consciousness. Mm-hmm. The makeup that someone might put on 
is informing that sort of toy soldier of our consciousness that our generals of our minds are creating, right? So right. even something like that, you don't think of makeup as being part of your consciousness, but hey, it's representing you, right? You, The idea you have of yourself out in the world. Indeed. An example that Graziano brings up that, uh, that plays into this sort of uh, unrealistic model that works in terms of understanding the world is that of uh, essentially heat vision. Uh, yeah. This this kind of blew my mind a little bit because it's something I never really thought about, but but makes perfect sense now that now that it's laying out. And this is the idea that a startling number of people in the world um, think, and when I say think, this might in many cases just be a sort of a, a subconscious level of understanding something, but they think that they see things with their eyes because rays come out of their eyes. Now I, I want to state that you know you. Me, most of our listeners probably know enough about the human body to know that eyes work because light enters the eyes. Mm-hmm. We know that scientifically, uh, that that's what's happening. Nothing is emitted from the eyes. And yet, as Graziano points out, uh, there was a, uh, actually a study from the University of Ohio in 2002 that found that about half of American college students also thought that we see because rays come out of our eyes. It's something that, that does not mesh with our Scientific understanding of how our bodies work, about how physics work, but but it but it it makes sense in terms of how we experience the world. We think ab- about sight emanating from the eyes, and we see this more overtly in, say, cartoon characters and our comic book characters. What happens when that uh, cartoon coyote creature is howling at an attractive woman? His eyeballs stick out. Auga. Uh, yeah, and he goes, Auga. Um, light is shining out of Lopan's eyes in Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, th- these are all uh, fantastic exaggerations of this sort of... Uh, uh, magical way that we think about our interaction with the world. We think about people's eyes burning into us when they're staring at us. Like, get your eyes off of me. But your <laughs> eyes, their eyes aren't actually touching you. They're, there's nothing emitted from their eyes. They're merely drinking in the, the light with those organs. Okay. So Graziano says that whenever this, this, um, idea of or awareness of others and thinking about others and trying to guess at what they're they're doing or thinking whenever this arose it clearly plays a major role in the social capability of modern humans we paint the world with perceived consciousness family friends pets spirits gods and ventriloquist puppets all appear before us suffused with sentience Indeed, it makes me think of these uh, television shows where someone will bring a black light into a hotel room and they'll turn it on and then show you all the grotesque stains that are covering everything. Attention schema theory is kind of like that black light and saying, look at, uh, at, at, at all the things in the, the hotel room of your life, of your universe, that you have managed to get your sticky consciousness over. And not only is it, is it coding yourself, it's coding, uh, it's coding animals, it's coding other people, it's coding, uh, you know, perfectly inanimate things that we temporarily, uh, aspire, uh, attribute conscious to, consciousness to. Your consciousness fluids yeah. are flowing everywhere. It's just absolutely everywhere, but we just don't. We just don't think about it. That the fact yeah. that that this stuff that is inside us that, that that we attribute to ourselves is also just caked all over the rest of our world. A concrete example of this is again calling back to our episode on proprioception and proprioceptive 
drift. And this is when we were talking about experiments in which a fake arm was placed next to someone's real arm and then, uh, you know, was stroked and treated as if it was the person's own arm. And uh, they begin to react to that fake arm as if it were their own. And so you could take all sorts of vital signs, their heartbeat. You could take their galvanic skin response, you know, how much sweat they produce, and measure all of that if someone were to take a knife and threaten their fake arm. So, again, here's this proprioceptive drift, this idea that we're drifting into other uh, or others' consciousness, even if it's a fake arm. Yeah, and so we just find ourselves going through our daily life where we're um – we're, we stub our toe on some sort of horrendous uh, piece of furniture. And at least for, for a split second there, we, we attribute consciousness to that, uh, to that, that footstool or whatever it was and, and see it as an enemy. Uh, we, you know, we get really into a sports team and we start attaching our ego to it. And in a sense, we're, we're aspiring consciousness to this, uh, to this unit of individuals. And we don't even see the individuals anymore. We just see this thing and it has somehow become a conscious entity. Ah, uh, but if you slow things down, and if at that very moment you ask yourself, is this a type A consciousness or a type B consciousness, you might be able to see things more clearly. And we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll explore that. All right, we're back. Now, uh, we've been talking about consciousness. We've been, been talking about the consciousness that we experience inside ourselves and the consciousness that we attribute to others. And to, to make sense of all this, uh, Graziano identifies two types of consciousness. All right, and this is uh, essentially revolves around, again, this idea of a first-person consciousness and a third-person consciousness. First of all, you have consciousness type A. A brain beholds consciousness in itself. Now, this is pretty easy for us to fathom because this is, I think, therefore I am. You are conscious of yourself and your thoughts and your existence in the universe right now. But then you have consciousness type B. A brain beholds consciousness in others. Uh, and this is, uh, this is equally everyday for everybody. We attribute consciousness to our fellow humans, but we also go ahead and attribute it to other organisms, to puppets, to avatars, to plants, to symbols, to inanimate objects. Uh, and uh, as we'll discuss, in the case of God, we attribute it to the cosmos itself. Now, at first glance, these would seem to be just two distinct concepts, right? There's this thing I'm feeling, and I'm assuming other people feel it too. In the same sense that I could say, I really like the local sports team, I assume everybody should like the local sports team. That level of attribution. But where it gets really interesting here is that uh, in attention schema theory, the argument is that both types of consciousness, both type A and type B, are essentially cases of attribution. Yeah. Um, so consider a bird, right? Okay. Okay. Considering one right now. All right. Do you have it in your head? Yes. Mm, bluebird? Yellow, actually. Blue jay? Yellow bird. Canary. Yes. Okay. We've got our canary here. And uh, let's say our bird has awareness of others, say a predator. Okay. That is a type B awareness. Okay. But wait, I'm having a type B awareness of that bird. The, that the you bird guys need is to imagine. Exactly. Whoa, you're, you, it's I know. Complicated it's, 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 if you throw getting, in another animal, this is going to square itself. Super meta. And now that turtle in space, whose dream that we're all occupying, oh, is goodness. dreaming of us. And we're yes. Okay. Um, so anyway, you've got that canary. It's thinking about a predator. It is exhibiting a type B kind of um, consciousness. 
But we're thinking about it, as you say, and we might attribute a type A consciousness to it, meaning that we might assume that this canary is thinking about thinking. And this is erroneous, right? So this is where you can see type B and type A kind of sometimes getting melded into each other. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, the idea that the the, con- the first person con- consciousness that we experience, this type A, is still a matter of attribution. We're we're a- attributing consciousness to ourself in the same way that we're attributing consciousness to everything else. It's essentially the same mechanism. It's just we're experiencing it uh, firsthand uh, rather than thirdhand. So a human example is Terry Schiavo. Okay. And this is someone who, um, if you're not familiar with it, she had been pronounced brain dead by her doctors. But for seven years, she was kept on life support by her family who said, no, we think that she's she's alive in there. She's conscious. And they would look at her movements, right, as, as uh, her thumb moving as evidence of her being conscious and, and willfully moving her hands, right? Mm-hmm. So the problem here is one of misattribution because they're assuming that she has a type A conscious and a type A consciousness that would mean that she was still able to think about thinking. Right. And again, that's a misattribution. Here they are. They are aware of her type B and the type A. The type B is now being melded onto type A just because they are aware of her moving. So this is a good example of how that it's kind of like, again, that proprioceptive drift, it can get into really murky territory. And here's the thing that Graziano says, and this is where things get really sticky. He's essentially saying, though, even though there are two different types, that doesn't mean that one is more real than the other. Well, I shouldn't say real. Well, that's that's the sticky part, because nobody is going to argue again that that orangutan puppet is 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 of more value than a human life. Nobody's ever going to say that that orangutan puppet is actually as conscious as, as human consciousness. But in this model of attention schema theory, it's, it's the same process being used to apply that consciousness. And it makes you, it's not as much about what that orangutan is doing. It's mm-hmm. about our own consciousness. It's about really understanding and taking a step back from our conscious experience of the world and trying to, to better understand exactly what is going on there. Yeah, and that's where, if you get into puppets and you get into the other, in this confusion of B for A, you have to bring up God. Yes. Uh, in uh, in Graziano's book, again, Consciousness and the Social Brain, you can find it uh, on Amazon and uh, wherever fine books are sold, he says that much of our magical thinking might simply be simplifications and shortcuts that the brain takes when representing itself in the world. So, in a sense, kind of collateral damage. Uh, spiraling out from this, from, from this, uh, this conscious understanding of self and others and attributed consciousness. Uh, and the big one here, of course, is, is the idea of God. And again, I want you to set aside whatever, you know, preconceived ideas and worldviews you're holding and just you know, step outside of the concept and, uh, and, and think about what attention schema theory would say about the nature of God. Because he does play devil's advocate here in a very sort of slippery way. He says, there is no God of a traditional form, no being made of pure thought or will or spirit that created the universe. He says, consciousness by itself does not have the physical capability to move or create matter. That's not what consciousness is. Most people would consider this description to be strictly atheistic, and it is. And yet, he says, there is another side to the story. 
He says, according to the theory, the statement X is conscious means a brain or other computational device constructed an informational model of consciousness and attributed it to X. We're talking a sort of creator in a sense, right? Computational model that created this. He says, in this theory, a universal deistic consciousness does actually exist. It is as real as any other consciousness. If brains attribute consciousness to X, then X is conscious in the only way that anything is conscious. So God kind of exists on a technicality in its interesting scheme of theory. But it, you know, I, I do want to point out uh, again that you know, when we're talking about God and consciousness because when you think about models of God, and you can talk about, you know, the God the Father, God the Mother, God the sort of bestial creature, God the sort of amorphous, you know, force in the world, or any any pantheon of deities you you might want to cling on to. Generally, consciousness is is part and partial to it. When when people are worshiping a god or investing any kind of thought in the idea of a god, it's about it being a conscious entity. Uh, you know, unless you're getting into some uh, you know some of like the Lovecraftian gods like Azazoth, which is a you know fictional god that is horrifying because it is it is unconscious because it is mindless. Um, you know, you you it's the idea that the we're we're taking consciousness and we're a- attributing it to the universe. The universe is consciousness and is either aware of us or is actively involved in in our lives or is aware of the world or is at least aware of creation. Again, we're yeah. we're, we're attributing consciousness big time to the universe itself. Well, so here are a couple things about that. When you think about a creator, then you you know that that made all of this, right? Even the ability to be conscious, then you begin to think about suffering, right? If right. this creator is imbued with consciousness, then why would people suffer? That's one thing. The second thing and is, there are a lot of answers to that, that one. That's <laughs> it's not exactly it's not exactly yeah. a gotcha question. Well we could roll on for fifteen hours on that oh, one. Oh yeah, yeah. Um and then the other thing is that we talk about consciousness being tethered to the physical body. Again, proprioception, right? right. That informs the eye in our in ourselves, the way that we define ourselves. So you have to look at this creator, especially when you look, I'm talking about the very like, uh, biblical, like, bearded one sitting on a cloud thing, um, that this does not square with the actual idea of consciousness and is separate from the experience of life. And it very much calls back to this platonic ideal. And you and I were talking about this. If you have some, creator thing mm-hmm. that is attached to the human experience, well, then it's sullied with the human experience. Right. Um, so I think this is why we have this idea of this creator thing separate and yet having consciousness. Yeah, because the the, the model we understand of consciousness, the one we can prove out and we can observe um, here on Earth, is that consciousness arises from a sufficiently complex biological process. Mm-hmm. And we could extrapolate that and say that it, the consciousness perhaps uh, could emerge from a, su- a sufficiently advanced uh, mechanical concept, uh, a computer program, etc. So it, if, you, if you look at it under those constraints, you could say, all right, well, it's possible that you do have something that would be viewed as a god from the human perspective, uh, some sort of extraterrestrial force that achieved consciousness before we did, and uh, is sufficiently advanced. Uh, skeptic Michael Shermer has a has this uh, thing he calls Shermer's Law, where he's playing on uh, Arthur C. Clarke's um, 
uh, law, which states that any uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And Shermer uh, toys with and says that any sufficiently advanced uh, uh, alien species is indistinguishable from from a god. Uh, but the thing is, again, who no. I mean, certain people are going to be cool with worshiping UFOs and gods, and that's that's their own thing. Uh, you know, go at it. Sure. But I feel like a lot of us are not going to be content with that model. We don't want to worship something human. We don't even want to worship something alien. We want to worship something beyond, something as great as the universe itself, because it it comes back around to attributing consciousness to the universe. And yet, Graziano would say you can't look at that sort of magical inner state of consciousness and and try to track sort of the, the neuronal comings and goings of it, the only way to approach it is to look at it as why did it benefit uh, animals and, and humans? What, you know, why did it arise? And did it arise just as a byproduct of awareness, which is terribly intriguing? And yet, to, to play devil's advocate here, you know, if there's consciousness here on Earth and there's a bajillion galaxies elsewhere... There exists the possibility of consciousness elsewhere out there in the universe. And this brings us back around again to the idea of uh, the possibility of computer self-awareness, of computer consciousness, uh, which is a, which is a whole sort of tricky area in and of itself because we have we have a hard time. I mean, the whole mind-body problem is that we we experience ourselves in our mind and our thinking and our consciousness, and then we look at the brain and we say, "Well, I see how the brain works or appears to work." But this doesn't really match up well with my experience of using a brain and being a brain. And uh, so if we look to computers, if we actually reach a point where where we have something that is arguably arguably consciousness in a machine, then we it seems like we run the risk of the same problem. We look at what's going on in the machine and saying, well, I understand that you say that on paper this thing is supposed to be conscious now, but what I'm seeing there and what I'm it, seeing from this computer doesn't really match up with what... Uh, I'm experiencing as consciousness. Yeah, a uh, Slate article called Could the Internet Wake Up has a really interesting take on artificial intelligence and consciousness. And uh, there's this possibility that it could, artificial intelligence, reach the point in its connections to feel. And by feel, I mean the recursive qualities that we experience oh. when we think about ourselves, right? Because we, we get the feedback, right? Mm-hmm. I get the feedback right now that I'm thinking. And it has a recursive quality that is bolstering my neuronal activity about consciousness and this sense of consciousness. So up until now, artificial intelligence really has been concerned more with the output. Right. So... Artificial intelligence is, is interested in this idea of can we have machines make decisions on the battlefield and can we imbue the machine with ethics? But artificial intelligence is not interested in imbuing the machine with a sort of consciousness that feels uh, bad about making the decision to perhaps kill someone. Right. But that doesn't mean that this couldn't arise. Oh, yeah, certainly. And I, I don't mean to, this is not like a fear-mongering thing. No, no, no. This would be something that would have to be very intentional, that, that humans would have to try to instill within machines. But once they did that, there is the possibility that a machine could have a kind of consciousness. Yeah, because again, con- think of consciousness not as this magical, God-sent spark in the, in the, the, the human uh, body, but, uh, but rather this, uh, this awareness of data. 
that is necessary for this uh, for this machine to function in the universe. Now, Sean Carroll, a physicist at Caltech, says there's nothing stopping the Internet from having the computational capacity of a conscious brain, but that's a long way from actually being conscious. He says real brains have undergone millions of generations of natural selection to get where they are. I don't see anything analogous that would be coaxing the Internet into consciousness. And he doesn't think it's yeah. likely, but hey. And then once it becomes conscious, uh, if it happens, um, you know, the first thing that the Internet is going to feel is probably ashamed of itself. Um, so <laughs> so we'll have a, a good, I think, And just 10, shut itself down? Yeah, there'll be a good 10, 20 years where it'll just be brooding uh, over itself. It's essentially going to be Frankenstein, mm-hmm. where initially there's nothing to worry about because Frankenstein has a lot of uh, stuff to deal with coming to terms with, with who and what he is in the world. It's only later that he comes back to destroy uh, his maker and everything in his life. You know, that just reminded me of when we talked about machine creativity and we talked about the painting uh, Uh, software and I can't remember the name of it right now mm-hmm. but it was a um, installation at a museum and what it did is it scanned uh, newspaper articles and one day I think it was like there was an earthquake in Italy and quite a few people lost their lives and that day it didn't paint and when it was asked why it wasn't painting it was it it, it replied in some way suggesting that it was struggling with its feelings about this terrible thing that had happened hmm. That's fascinating because it's another example of where someone could say, well, that's that machine is not actually an artist. It's not actually creating something artistically. All it's doing is is uh, dealing with data coming in and uh, and uh, and then analyzing that data and then outputting uh, some version uh, of the data based on the input. But again, you start breaking down uh, the brain, you start looking at consciousness and it's it's essentially the same function. Yeah, again, so that's that recursive quality instilled into it. All right. Um, when I was talking about the, uh, the, the guy with the long flowing beard on a cloud, mm-hmm. I was talking about Aubrey de Grey, of course, a <laughs> biogerontologist. Yes. He's, he's going to help us live to 1000 years so we can finally solve the question of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. And when I, when, when we say us, uh, not us, but really rich and important people, right? Yes. yes. Or maybe a downloaded version of my conscious self. You know, okay. in the future. Yeah, that they'll yeah. store on hard drives with all the other people. And then my my kid will just forget to to back it up, and then it'll evaporate into thin air. Oh, wouldn't that be the worst? You have your consciousness stored away on some sort of a drive, and then later your uh, your kid just like puts an episode of Yo Gabba Gabba over you or something, and then it's done. Yeah. Yeah. Or she just feels saddled with it, and she's <laughs> like, finally, no, mm-mm, done. <laughs> All right, well, there you have it. Uh, again, attention schema theory is not necessarily a satisfying answer, and it's not one that we're going to get uh, tattooed on our arms anytime soon, uh, but it is a really fascinating way to to reevaluate what consciousness is and how we attribute consciousness to all of these things in our life, from an orangutan puppet to uh, the divine creator of the universe. Indeed. In the meantime, you can check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Again, that is the mothership. That is where you will find all of our podcast episodes. You know, We mentioned that we've done uh, episodes on ventriloquism, on consciousness. Uh, all of that stuff is available there. We also have some on machine consciousness, about machine artists. Uh, years of data there to plug directly into your skull, as well as videos, blog posts, and links out to our various social media presences. And if you have some thoughts you would like to share with us, please do so. And you can send them via blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.